So I, I was reading in Psychology Today about New Year's resolutions. Now, I, I wasn't reading about New Year's resolutions because I enjoy New Year's resolutions. I, I, was re the, I think my, my fascination with them really revolves more around the fact that I like to work out. So consequently, I know that at the beginning of every January, I should avoid the gym because there are a lot of people who have made New Year's resolutions that will come into the gym and I will no longer be able to use my favorite equipment at the gym. Or if I do, it means I have to wait in a long line and I don't like waiting in long lines when I'm at the gym, so it's better just to take a couple weeks off the gym, wait for all those people who have made New Year's resolutions to peter out, and then, and then I go back to the gym. Uh, so, so in, this, in uh, Psychology Today, it was talking about how apparently about 50% of you adults are not like me in that I don't make New Year's resolutions. About 50% of American adults make New Year's resolutions on, on a yearly basis. I'm, uh, I, I tend not to. I, I'm a bit of an ornery person by nature. If someone tells me I'm supposed to do a New Year's resolution in January, I'll wait till February to come up with my New Year's resolution. I don't like doing things like that. Um, now, when people make New Year's resolutions, for the most part, they revolve around financial or, or something related to health or something like that. Now, and again, this part isn't unexpected, but most New Year's resolutions don't last very long. They don't last very long. Now, there are a number of reasons that this article cited, but the one significant one that it pointed to as being probably the predominant reason is that when people begin New Year's resolutions, they quickly become dissatisfied because they don't see the change they had wanted. They don't see the change. They don't see the effect of the New Year's resolution quickly enough, and so they bail out. If it's, if it's the gym, then they don't begin seeing the effects of weight loss or muscle or whatever their goal is. If it's, uh, if it's eating healthier for, for just general health, they don't see any effects that come from it quickly enough. So they return to their natural habits. Now, I think this overlaps. I think this overlaps with James's message for us today. I think this overlaps with what we'll be looking at. Our passage this morning comes at the end of James's letter. As we've read through the letter of James, James each week has been showing us what it means for us as Christians to be living out our faith in different realms or different spheres of life. This week, he does that with the topic of prayer. We take a look at what prayer means and how do we live out our faith in prayer as one of the most fundamental Christian practices or Christian disciplines of the Christian life. His discussion of prayer follows from the previous discussion on suffering that we looked at earlier in chapter 5, talking about how do Christians persevere in the midst of suffering. So, so in the last section, we talked, about how, we talked about how we need to be patient in the midst of suffering. Well, this follows that conversation up with adding one more topic on. We don't just need to be patient, but we're also called to pray. Right? So this week, James gives us the other element that we need to cling to Christ in the midst of pain, and that is prayer. Barna reports that prayer is one of the most consistent religious practices in American lives. About 85% of Americans daily engage in some activity that they refer to as prayer. 
right? This is something that people practice. Now, in that report, in that report, Barna's not saying that all 85% of those are Christians. So they're praying to various things, some different deities. They're praying, but, but they're doing something that they consider to be prayer on a regular basis. But James is going to step in today and helpfully, helpfully direct us in what it means for us as Christians to be raising up genuine Christian prayers. We're going to look at what it means to be raising up genuine Christian prayers. So today we're going to look at the faith that prays, or more specifically, prayer and its persevering power in plight. Its persevering power in plight. There are about five or so, there are about five or so, um, um, there are about five or so um, things that, that James is going to tell us about prayer this morning as we jump into our passage. But let's go ahead and look at our passage. We'll read through it. It should be up on your screen. Again, this is James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call. He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for, thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for our opportunity to just be in your word, God. Lord, we, we, we pray that you would speak to us afresh this morning. Lord, that you would give us a greater understanding of what you have called us to in prayer, Father, and that we would live out a life of prayer, Father. God, that your word would inform the way that we talk, the way that we communicate with you, Lord, and that that would transform us and transform our prayers so that our prayers might provide the power that we need to persevere in the midst of plight, in the midst of suffering. God, you are good. Lord, we pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. All right, so principle number one, then, this morning that James points us to is that prayer is persistent. Prayer is persistent. We get this from verse 13, where James writes, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. All right, so James here, he, pre he presents two ends of the spectrum. Two ends of the spectrum. If anyone was, is in trouble or suffering, or having or in the midst of hardship, they should turn to Christ in prayer. If anyone is happy over here on the other end of the spectrum, then they also should turn to God. So that no matter what, no matter what um, the circumstance that you're in, you should always be turning to Christ, right? 
James tells us our response should should basically be the same. No matter what, we are going to God, regardless of our circumstances of life. Now, neither of these responses are really all that natural for us. These things aren't things that we would just naturally do of our own accord. How many times have we seen people actually pull away from God in the midst of struggles and in the midst of trials? Sometimes they do so out of indignation. Why, why would God let me go through that? Why would God allow me, allow me to experience that? And so we pull away. Sometimes it's out of a lack of genuine belief or genuine faith. And so we say, you know, if that could happen to me in my life, then maybe God isn't real. Then maybe God isn't really there if, if I'm able to go through these sorts of trials. On the other side, how often do we see people ignore God when things are going well in their life? Things are going well, and so they, they, they have no need for God, so to speak. Their belly is full. They have shelter. They, entertainment is ample. They have a huge list, a, a huge queue in their Netflix, so they're ready to go. Why, why would they need to turn to God then in the midst of that? But James's advice here is that no matter our experience, that we should persist in always going back to the Lord. It, it reminds me of the, uh, of the classic illustration of the college student that only calls home when they need something, right? Not, not that any of you college students or any of you parents have a college student who is like that, but you get a phone call from your college student and all of a sudden you know their car is broken or they're hungry, or some, they just need someone to do their laundry for them, right? You, you kind of go down the list, and you can almost predict how the conversation is going to play out, right? Is that, is that what our prayer life is supposed to be like? We only go to God under certain circumstances? No, we're to go with, to Him regardless of the circumstances of our life. A life of faith and wisdom is built on prayer regardless regardless of whether or not you always feel like praying. In our family devotions, in our family worship, one of the things that we do daily is, um, is as a family, we pray together. And one of the rules of our prayer time is that everybody prays, regardless of whether or not we feel like it. Because there are many days when I don't want to pray. There are many days when I don't feel like praying, right? If I began to only pray on the days that I felt like praying, I would not be praying very regularly at all. So I want to teach my kids that their prayer life isn't contingent on how they feel, right? Now, that might sound weird to some of you. Some of you might feel like, well, that sounds hypocritical. I mean, aren't we only supposed to do it when we feel like it, when we have this, when we have this right feeling? To which I would say, well, no. If I told my kids to clean their room and they came back to me and said, you know, Dad, I don't really feel like it. And if my heart's not really in it, I feel like it'd be hypocritical for me to actually go and clean my room. <laughs> right? That, I, I don't even know what I would do if my kids did that. God has called us to a life of prayer regardless of how we feel, regardless of the situations, regardless of where we're at. Our life is to be a life that's bathed in prayer. 
James is encouraging us to cultivate a regular discipline of seeking out the Lord. The second principle that he highlights is that prayer is public. Prayer is public. James here, he, he unfolds, he unfolds this, uh, this situation in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them and to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. So in this situation, we have someone who is sick, and this per- person is probably, is probably very sick, because notice in this passage, it says that they're actually praying over them. So it's as though this person is prostrate on the, on the, on the ground or on a bed and unable to get up. These, so the elders have to actually come to them. Now, if you're not familiar with the term elder, uh, elder is a position in a church. It's a position of leadership in a local congregation. Elders are specifically tasked with the duty of, uh, of shepherding and caring for the congregation. And as you've already seen multiple times this morning, both in service and communion and then praying over Cindy, those are the elders of your church. Um, and then what probably stands out most to you in this passage is the anointing with oil that happens. Why is it the elders anoint, anoint the sick individual with oil? Well, the short answer is we don't really know, right? Um, I, I wasn't there, so it's hard, it's hard for me to say for sure. And the, honestly, there's not a whole lot written about why that practice happens, only that it, it did begin to happen in the early church. Now, there are a number of guesses on potentially why. One of the more well-known reasons, uh, potential reasons why, and this is the belief that the Roman Catholic Church has, is that this is kind of um, their sacrament of anointing of the sick, where oil would be applied to remove any remnants of sin and to strengthen the individual's soul for death. That would be the Roman Catholic position. I think that position is, um, is probably less likely for a number of theological reasons, but more than anything, it doesn't fit in this passage where the emphasis is actually on healing, right? When the elders are anointing the oil, it's not with the expectation this person is about to die. It's with the hope that this person is healed. So that doesn't fit the Roman Catholic context. Um, another, potential, another potential reason that they anoint with oil is for medicinal purposes, is possible that they did it for medical reasons. Um, some in the ancient or in the ancient culture, it was very common to use oil as almost a medicine to try to heal people of various various um, afflictions and such. And in fact, we even see that happening more and more again today. Um, thus, the elders are coming both to pray over the individual, but then also to take care of their physical needs. Now, it's not obvious in this passage why the elders would be called upon to anoint the person with oil, though. Um, why, why wouldn't someone else have already done that work? And again, I think the emphasis in this passage isn't on healing through oil, but the emphasis is healing through prayer, right? So I don't think that's probably the best reading of this passage. Another view, and the one that, that I find most likely, is that James and the early church's use of oil grew out of their understanding of the Old Testament. Regularly, oil was, was put on someone in the Old Testament to represent them being set apart for some special service or for something God has called them to, right? It was, it was a physical representation of what God had already declared over someone. That person would be set apart for this special purpose. 
Thus, in this reading, in this reading, anointing oil with oil would be a physical representation of this person being set apart, this person being a special case for God's healing. So the elders are setting this person apart, saying, God, heal this person, please. However, no matter how interesting it is, the oil, I mean, again, the oil captures our attention because it's foreign to us. Because for most of us, it's not, this isn't something we see in our daily life. But it's important to point out that the, the emphasis in this passage isn't on oil. The emphasis is really on prayer. It's on the prayer. The elders of the church were invited to come and to pray over this sick person. And this is important for us to note because the elders, notice the elders are expected to be in prayer for the congregation, which means they actually need to know what's going on in the lives of the people of the church. As prayers are needed, as, as things come up, the elders need to be informed about these things. People are communicating their prayer needs to the elders, but, but not just to the elders. Notice in verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. It's not just that the elders are the ones who are praying, but rather all believers are called to be in prayer for one another, regularly lifting each other up and their needs up in prayer. The body is meant to function together in all of its various members. You know, I, uh, a few weeks ago, I found a, a wasp nest uh, under, under, my back, um, under my back deck. Um, and at the time, I was busy, so I couldn't really get to it quickly. They, they were generally leaving us alone for a little while. Uh, they were generally leaving us alone, so I, I probably put it off a little bit. Um, and then, uh, and then fi- finally, finally, they were chasing my kids around the yard and everything. I was like, all right, I should probably do something about these wasps now. So, um, so, so Chuck Stomberg came over, and he and I were looking at it from what we felt like was a safe distance. I mean, we, we, had to be, we had to be at least 10 to 15 feet away from that nest, kind of looking at it, plotting their ultimate demise, talking about the various poisons I was going to use to, like, eradicate them. Um, and, and all of a sudden, one came and landed on my glasses. So, 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 so I, I mean... I was panic-stricken. I was, like, fearing for my life. I was about to lose an eyeball. Um, and so, uh, and so, so, so I began to move quickly, and, and all of a sudden, one landed on my arm and stung me, like a different one. I was like, ah. So, um, so, 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 so I, I quickly ran across the yard, like, rolling in the grass and, like, swatting my face. And I think I ended up doing more injury to myself than that wasp actually did to me in the process. But, but the point is, is... Notice, when a wasp landed on my glasses, I didn't just take my pinky out and then just kind of swipe it away, did I? No, I, I utilized all of my members, right? Everything that I could do to kill that wasp was currently happening. My legs were running, my arms were swatting. It probably looked hilarious from the inside. Thankfully, my kids weren't watching, Right? My, my whole body engaged in dealing with the problem. And that's the same way we should be as a body of believers, right? It, when a wasp enters in, it's not just for one member to kind of go and swipe away at. It's for all of the members to deal with, right? We rally around each other in prayer. And we have tons of avenues for that here at Lakes Free. We have ABFs. We have ABFs. As Jason already spoke about this morning, one of the central components of an ABF is getting together to pray, 
And as I've been meeting with different ABF groups throughout the summer, that is something the ABFs are very committed to, praying for each other, praying for the needs, praying for the things that are happening, sharing things, sharing needs with one another. Those are huge. Um, I think similar things happen in youth group. Um, in the children's ministry, there are opportunities for prayer. We also do an event called Prepare, Prepare with Prayer. It happens, I believe, just once a year where we were able to get together and to, to, to pray over the church and over the various ministries of the church. We have church-wide emails. We, in our connection cards, there's actually a place where you can fill out prayer requests. Right? There are tons of avenues for us to be about the work of public prayer, corporately praying for one another. Um, one of my friends, a pastor out on the East Coast, Garrett Kell, he likes to point out that the single most important book for every Christian, aside from the Bible, is the church directory. The single most important book for every Christian is the church directory. Why? Because you have a prayer book right there with all the names in the congregation, so that daily you can be lifting up the members of our congregation in prayer. Whether you know their specific needs or not, we can be praying for one another. So what does your prayer life look like? Is it more focused on you, or are you thinking about the needs of the body? The next principle is that prayer petitions. Prayer petitions. It makes, it makes dependent dependent needs, um, it appeals them to God, right? Prayer leans on God. James shows us this in verse 15, one of the more difficult verses in this section. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. So James here states that the prayer offered in faith, or just the prayer of faith, will make, this is future tense, will make the sick person, which is probably here referring to the invalid who's, who's already been anointed with oil, it will make them well. And this word for well in the Greek, it actually is, is well, it actually, well, well, we'll get to that. Um, so there are a number of ways to interpret this passage. There are a number of ways we can look at this. One interpretation is that if the Christian prays and has absolute confidence in the outcome of the prayer, then it will happen. It will happen no matter what it is. If the Christian prays, then whatever they pray for will happen. Now, this, in, this interpretation is certainly understandable if we read this verse in isolation from the rest of the book and, and even from the rest of the Bible. It's certainly understandable that if we take just this verse and read it by itself, it would be easy to understand how we would arrive at that conclusion. But I don't think that's a good interpretation for, for this verse. And I think there are a number of reasons why. One of the reasons, one of the reasons is just by looking through the New Testament, we see sickness is still very much present in the early church. People were getting sick, right? Um, for, for instance, Paul, Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, he prayed three times that the, that the Lord would remove a thorn from his flesh. And I don't think he's meaning literal thorn here. He's probably referring to sickness of some sort. He prays three times that the Lord would remove this, and the Lord's response is, no. No. Even though Paul prayed this, God told him, no, I will not do it. On a different occasion, according to 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul actually has to leave one of his missionary companions, Trophimus, behind because he's sick. 
Now, again, if Paul can just pray and make the sickness go away, there's no need for him to leave Trophimus behind. But he does so that he can heal naturally. On a different occasion, when he's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, he, he tells him to drink a little bit of wine because he has stomach issues, and wine helps, his, helps him deal with his stomach issues. His, his response to Timothy isn't, isn't, Timothy, why haven't you prayed about this? Why aren't your prayers being effective? What, what's your sin? You need to get your act together, and let's make this happen, right? No, rather, he gives them a very physical way to try to deal with an ailment, so again, we see sickness in the New Testament. And then there's also Jesus' promise in, in John 16, that in this world, we will have troubles. In this world, he promises we will have troubles. This life is not meant to be a copacetic life of ease where everything goes well and we get to experience, we get to experience heaven here now on earth. Rather, that's still something we're looking forward to. And finally, uh, a very obvious example is we see death run its, we, we see sickness run its course to death, right? Death is still present. The ultimate end of sickness is still here and with us. Death continues in the New Testament and throughout church history unabated. No, brothers and sisters, I, I, I don't think that James is giving us a get out of jail card here, right? He's not saying that prayer will alleviate all the woes in our life. And I don't think, I don't think that's what James is indicating here. And looking at James's life, I don't, think there's any, I don't think there's any notion of that there. He's seen too much death and hardship to possibly believe that. So another, and I think much better interpretation, is that, is that this verse is referring to a spiritual reality. So that the person pictured here isn't actually healed, but rather they're spiritually bettered somehow. They're, they know Christ more. They're sanctified. Now, to support this, um, the language in this passage was, isn't necessarily obvious in the NIV. It can be read this way, that we're looking at a spiritual situation. The word, um, the description being made well here, that's actually the Greek word for saved. That's actually the Greek word for saved. And being raised up is typical language of resurrection. And then the following verse goes on to discuss forgiveness. So maybe this is the spiritual reality that's being unpacked here. Now, I think, I think this is good interpretation, and many smarter people than myself certainly hold to this interpretation, but I still don't think it's the best interpretation. I don't think it's the best one. Um, A... When people, uh, when Jesus used the language that we just discussed, the language of, of saved, the language of being raised up, things like that, he is fairly consistently referring to physical healing. He is pretty consistently referring to physical healing. And James ends up being a major source, or Jesus ends up being a major source for James in his writing. So I think James is using the same language as Jesus and the same language of, uh, of the Old Testament authors who also use the language in that way. And on top of that, in addition to, uh, to, to Jesus' influences on his, own, on his own language, his immediate context also seems to be pointing towards physical healing, right? I think that's what we see in verse 14. In verse 14, this looking forward to the healing of the person who's been anointed with oil and prayed over. But not only that, but also in the following, in the following verse where it talks about, where it talks about um, forgiveness, in the ancient world, physical healing and physical sickness are often 
closely tied to questions of sin and forgiveness. As the ancients believed that physical ailment often resulted, it was often the result of sin. Jesus even had to correct this thinking in his disciples in John 9, 2. When the disciples see a man, they ask, Lord, is this person lame because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? Right? And Jesus steps in and corrects their thinking. It's very common to put those things together. But if this passage then isn't pointing to, to kind of a carte blanche blank check on prayer, and if it's also not referring to a spiritual reality, but rather does refer to a physical healing, how are we, under, how are we to understand it without slipping back into the first interpretation? How do we understand this without slipping into that first interpretation where we think my prayers will always heal everything? And I think the key here is the expression, a prayer offered in faith. A prayer offered in faith. Or in the Greek, simply a prayer of faith. Now, I understand this, I understand this and the verse in general to be parallel to what we see in John 14, 14, which reads, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Another view, verse that could easily be abused, unless you take seriously what in my name means. In my name or in the name of Christ isn't just a tag on for the ends of, for the ends of our prayer that we kind of just say mindlessly, you know? That's not the purpose of it. Rather, to ask something in the name of Christ is to ask for it according to his will for his will to be done, for his purposes to be accomplished, and for his glory's sake. That's what it means to pray in the name of Christ. And this is also what we see Christ teaching more explicitly in places like the Lord's Prayer, right? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' desire and prayer is that God's will would be done. And not only that, but then we also see Jesus living this out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Over and over in Jesus' prayers and Jesus' teaching, he's emphasizing the important thing is God's will being done and God getting the glory, right? So, so prayer, yes, is about making our requests known to God, but it's also conforming our will to his. And this is praying in faith. It's confidence not that he will do what we want, but rather that he knows what's best. That's what, that's what praying in faith is, praying that he knows best. He knows what we need. He knows what needs to, to happen. That's faith, right? And this interpretation then also fits with the following illustration that James provides in verses 17 to 18 about Elijah. And we'll see that, and we'll see that play out in a minute. So yes, that's the sort of prayer that I think James wants here. That's the sort of prayer that I think God wants from us. A confident prayer that trusts that he is in control and knows best. Sometimes this does mean healing. Absolutely. I have prayed at the bedside of those who are sick and should not have recovered, and yet they recovered. I have seen those things happen. And I'm amazed every single time I do see it happen. Right? But I have also prayed at the bedside of those who were not meant to get better, who, who, who were not expected to get better, and indeed they did not. Right? I have seen both ends of the spectrum. Um, and I have also seen death, and I have seen paralysis, and I have seen cancer. 
we hear confident, that we're supposed to be confident in our culture, and so often we equate it with self-confidence. But that's not the biblical confidence. That's not biblical confidence. Rather, we look confidently to Him. We pray prayers of petition and dependence on Him, calling on Him to act, calling for His will to be done, calling for His glory to be made manifest. God desires prayers of faith that boldly and confidently trust in him with every human inclination. When everything in us cries out, no, I know better. I know what should happen here. I know how this situation would best play out. A prayer of faith says, no, you don't. God knows what's best in this situation, and God knows how this situation should play out. The next principle that we look at is a prayer um, is that prayer is proportionate. Prayer is proportionate. And what I mean when I say that is it's proportionate to and related to our relationship with Christ. Like we already saw back in verse 16. Therefore, confess, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So as we already saw, there's a public nature of praying for each other, but there's also a need for confession. Now, this isn't a Roman Catholic style of confession. This isn't that you need to come to, to Pastor Jason and myself and spill your guts and tell us everything you've ever done. Rather, this is, this is something that you need to do with each other. As you struggle with temptations, as you struggle with sins, you need to be about the regular act of sharing them with one another. Having people in our lives and mature believers who can come alongside us and battle with us for our faith is so important in the Christian life. In fact, Paul, in fact, James seems to be making the case that it's essential in the Christian life. We need people that, um, to whom we can confess our sins and temptations. And why? Because it affects our relationship with Christ. Our lack of intimacy with others will affect our intimacy with Christ. And our sin actually affects our prayer life. As James said earlier, back in 4.3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. Our sin stifles our prayers. Finally, James's final principle for us is that prayer is potent. Prayer is potent. This comes out of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. James wants his readers to understand that, again, that prayer is powerful. There's great prayer in it. There, there are two negative routes we can go, right? There are two negative routes we can go. On, on one wrong route is to so overemphasize the power of prayer to the point that we make ourselves omnipotent. We make ourselves all-powerful so that we end up being these little demigods, and, we can, and prayer becomes our vehicle for shifting reality to our preferences, right? That, that's one potential wrong route, one, way, one wrong way to view prayer. The other, the other wrong route is to diminish the power of prayer so much that we're left wondering, what's the point at all? Why even pray if it doesn't do anything? And our prayer lives become weak and anemic to match our misperception of prayer. But our passage this morning takes us in a third direction. It takes us in a third direction. Prayer isn't weak. We're weak. But prayer isn't omnipotent either. 
God is omnipotent. Prayer is our way of talking to the Lord God Almighty, the almighty omnipotent creator and sustainer and shaper of all reality. And he delights to use our prayers to bring about his sovereign purposes. He delights to use our prayers. It's almost like an electrical wire. The electrical wire in itself is not strong and is not powerful until it's connected to its source, right? That, that's where it gets its power. It's the same way with our prayer life. And James gives us an illustration of that. He shows us the example of Elijah, one of the most famous and celebrated prophets in the Old Testament. This account that we find in verses 15 to 16 comes from 1 Kings 17 to 18. There, Elijah communicates God's word, right? He's a prophet. God has told him what he is going to bring about in the nation of Israel. And then Elijah, in response, prays and the rains cease for three and a half years. At the end of that three and a half year time, he prays again according to God's will, and the rains begin again. There are a few things that this illustrates. First, Elijah's prayers are in accordance with God's expressed will, right? This is the same thing that we were just looking back in verse 15. This is a prayer of faith. They are in, they are in consistency with his expressed will. This is a prayer of faith that Elijah is offering. The second thing is Elijah's prayers are also proportionate to his relationship with God. Though he wasn't yet in a relationship with Christ, he wasn't covered in the blood of Christ, he was considered to be righteous. And so he was able to come before God and make these sorts of prayers. And then finally, we see God accomplishing potent things, powerful things through his prayers. This is what James is calling us to, brothers and sisters. He doesn't want us to pray weak prayers. He wants us to pray powerful prayers that accomplish his great things. God doesn't need us or our prayers, but he wants to use us. He wants his people to come before him together with big radical prayers that have been shaped by confession and righteousness of his son. Prayers that erupt from our intimacy with him, regardless of the situations of our life, regardless of the context. God wants these kinds of prayers, and he wants to bless them. He wants to do radical things with them. This isn't a God who is enslaved to our whims, and it's not a God who is distant or stingy with his children. This is our king who stands on Mount Zion, before whom the mountains are leveled, before whom the oceans will be drained, before whom the, the stars and the sun blush because they are just that dim in comparison with him. And yet we, more often than not, content ourselves with mealy-mouthed, puny little prayers to this mighty king. This should not be so. Let us be the sort that stormed the gates of heaven with big, bold, passionate prayers, lifted up in accord to his word and to his will, prayers of faith. Let's be bold in the things we petition God for. Let's pray for the salvation of our neighbors. Let's pray and not grow weary of praying for our families our families who don't know the Lord that we've been praying for for years, but we've gotten tired and we don't believe God will actually do anything at this point, we need to continue to storm the gates of heaven for them. We need to continue to be prayerful. We need to pray for our country, that there would be a radical change that would happen in this country that would draw people to God. We need to pray for our neighborhoods. We need to pray for our cities. There are no prayers that are too big for our God. 
The problem is that our prayers are often too small, right? So what do we do with this? How, how, do, we, how do we live out this sort of prayer life? Just, just four points quickly. Number one, first and foremost, our prayers are rooted in faith, right? right? It's rooted in our relationship with Christ. If we don't know him, we cannot come before the Lord God Almighty. It's rooted in faith. And we only, we only know him. We only know him through trusting in the saving work of his son for us. We need faith. Number two, we need to know God's will and be transformed by it. He gives us his will here in his word. And as we spend time with him, he shapes us. He shapes our hearts. He shapes our minds so that we know his will. He knows what he is, we know what he is calling us to. Number three, we need community. If we're genuinely going to be corporate prayers, public prayers, we need Christian community we can pray with. And number four, we need boldness. We need boldness. We need to pray and not grow weary. Brothers and sisters, verses 19 to 20. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Let's, let's continue to do this as a body in prayer. Let's continue to lift one another up, to pray for each other, to turn each other from our sins and from our corruptions and from our temptations. Not like, not like a New Year's resolution where you quickly stop within a week but with confidence, with confidence that God will work. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you so much that you hear our prayers, Father. We thank you so much that you work through our prayers, God, again, not that you need us, but God, because you are just that good and because you love us that much, Father. Lord, I pray that we would be bold in our prayers. God, we pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. If you would stand for our benediction, comes out of Ephesians chapter three, verses twenty to twenty, verses twenty to twenty-one. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.